This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 23rd, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. P.J. O'Rourke says young people can pretty much blame boomers for everything, from the state of politics to crushing entitlement spending to the lax standards of dress for American men. We spoke about his new book, The Baby Boom, How It Got That Way, and It Wasn't My Fault, and I'll Never Do It Again, yesterday. What can we blame baby boomers for? Well, you know, I think if uh, you, as you seem to, belong to a generation that comes after the baby boomers, everything, um, we are going to be uh, eating the economy alive. Uh, The youngest baby boomers just turned 50 this year. So that means, uh, you know, given our uh, persistence in uh, staying young, that means another 50 years of us gobbling uh, Social Security and Medicare benefits and probably a bunch of other benefits that nobody even noticed. So uh, all I can really say is, as I say in the subtitle of my book, it's not my fault. (laughs) I I didn't do it. Um, These programs were passed by – greatest generation and, in fact, with Social Security, the generation prior to the greatest generation. And they seem to have been passed with just the amazing idiocy, even by um, uh, uh, Washington political standards. They seem to have been passed with no eye on any demographic statistics. By the time Social Security statistics weren't as developed a science, uh, demographics uh, in, in the 30s when Social Security came along. But even then, they could have told, just looked at census report and realized that Americans were living longer. Social Security is a great system if everybody dies at 67 and a half, you know, but already by the time uh, Social Security was instituted, that was ceasing to be true and you could see where the trend line was going. Uh, Medicare is unbelievably stupid. Um, by the time Medicare comes in 68, uh, we know that uh, not only do we know that Americans are living much longer, so the idea of just giving everybody everything for free uh, uh, medically after 65 is not a good idea. But we also know that the costs of medicine uh, are rising. By then, the heart-lung machine has been invented. Open-heart surgery is beginning to be done. We know that there not only is there going to, going to be a huge group of people needing medical attention, but the ne- kind of medical attention that they need is going to be wildly expensive. And any moron could have seen this trend coming. And it's all, you know you can almost forgive the labor government in 1946 in Britain for national health, because what did healthcare consist of in 1946? Uh, an aspirin. We're going to give everybody a free aspirin and an occasional emergency appendectomy. <laughs> and so, fair enough. You've been through a war. You've been through a depression. You know, now, here's your payoff, and we're going to give you a free aspirin and a free asp- appendectomy. Set an occasional broken leg. But by 1968, we knew where medical costs were going, and um, to have been, so we will take the blame for that. The baby boom will take the blame for that because all the people younger than the baby boom will be paying for it and through the nose. But again, I maintain, as I maintain about uh, almost everything, it wasn't our fault. <laughs> so uh, you say it wasn't our fault, and uh, that seems like a baby boomer refrain. It and, is. And, and to, is. Somebody, <laughs> it to is. somebody who is younger than that, 
Uh, who cares? <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly why we're going to be de- hated and detested as we as we drift off into an, our extremely expensive old age. But uh, but we'll still love ourselves. We've we've always been very good at that. Speaking of loving yourselves, you've written a book about baby boomers. Uh, I have which indeed, is, which is worth noting. And baby boomers are famous for uh, loving themselves. They as are. You say they so. Are. Is that is that a conscious effort to try to get baby boomers to read your book about themselves? Or sure. something else. I mean, it's about them. I mean, it's about us, you know. So, of course, it's interesting. <laughs> but it's also um, – uh, there's a funny little subtext in the book is I actually think the baby boomers have made the world a much better place. And the way they've done it – and actually, I didn't figure this out until I'd written the book. So I wish I'd figured this out while I was writing the book or it'd be in the book. But, it's, but you have to get it now. What Adam Smith figured out about economics, everybody works – economically for their own selfish good, Uh, the butcher, the baker, the the brewer. They don't give us lunch because they love us. They give us lunch for their own personal gain. If you put all those selfish actions of free people in a free economy, if you put them all together, the net result is a benefit for all mankind, even though each of those people who are providing a benefit, didn't mean to provide a benefit for all mankind. They only meant to provide a benefit for themselves. The baby boom, there's a little bit of the emotional Adam Smith to the baby boom. We're deeply self-involved. We are um, deeply self-willed. We're very much about the self. Um, uh, Not so much materially in our case, since we came from good material circumstances, but it's really all, it's all about me. And yet having a whole nation with a huge generation that thinks too much about itself has resulted in a net benefit for everybody else. Because when you are deeply self-involved, when you are self-aware, when you are self-willed, it prevents you from, among other things, you know, from joining things like the Nazi Party, from being an effective communist. I mean, there is, for all the blather that may have gone around during the 1960s. There's nothing communal or collective about the baby boom. We are, at least at an emotional level, a deeply libertarian generation, and the nation has benefited from that. It's a, it's a kinder nation. It is a less racist nation. It is a less you know, homophobic nation. It is, is more not only intolerant, it's, it's embracing um, Give everybody a drug and a hug. That's the baby boom model. On that note, um, are you embarrassed that it took so long for baby boomers to legalize pot anywhere in the United States? I am more surprised than embarrassed, and yet, um, uh, yet I, I kind of understand why. The, um, uh, the drug culture that grew up in the 60s and the 70s turned out to be extremely destructive. Um, in, in, in many ways. Uh, it, it ruined a lot of lives. It drove up crime rates. It, it, it scared the dickens out of the nation. And I, I believe the reason that, that sensible legalization of relatively harmless drugs uh, has taken so long uh, is, has to do with the reaction to the excesses of, of the baby boom, including the baby boom's own reaction to their own excesses. It's hard to come out of rehab and then go uh, uh, campaign for legalized marijuana in a way. It just puts you in a, in a spot. So uh, I, th- I think um, 
all the research we did on what drugs do to people. And uh, it turns out, you know, some drugs don't do much. Some drugs do everything and, and none of it's good. Um, our John Belushi behavior led to the Nancy Reagan just say no, uh, a campaign which we're only now getting over. I mean, I, I, you look at marijuana, uh, uh, every society has intoxicants and uh, none of those intoxicants are probably great for your health or terrific for your social behavior. But if you compare the way beha people behave when they're stoned on pot to the way they behave when they're drunk, come on. You know, I mean, if you, if you, if you were designing society from scratch, which as a good libertarian, you one would never do. But if you were designing a society from scratch and you had to pick the dominant intoxicant in that society, and every society is going to have one, um, I mean, you'd pick pot way before you'd pick alcohol. Uh, you wrote recently that uh, Detroit needs help and your suggestion is akin to uh, Ron Paul's suggestion – or sorry, Rand Paul's suggestion, which is turn it into Hong Kong. Yeah, Rand Paul and I are very much on the same page with this. We are both – there was a guy way ahead of us, um, guy, uh, uh, a real estate developer in the Detroit area named Rod Lockwood, um, whose original proposal was to take – Detroit happens to have a 1,000-acre, really quite derelict city park, beautifully positioned, sitting out in the, uh, uh, in, in the river, in the Detroit River between Lake St. Clair and Lake Erie. And um, – uh, Rod wanted to uh, investors to get together and raise a billion dollars to buy that island from Detroit and turn it into a commonwealth, give it commonwealth status in the United States like Guam or um, um, Puerto Rico or the uh, um, uh, Northern Marianas Islands um, <clears throat> where all the laws of the United States would apply but, the, but, but, but taxation policy could be very different. And then he wanted it to have a taxation policy – um, similar, um, uh, Rod's idea was not quite like Hong Kong, but it, it was a similar idea. He had an idea for no income tax at all, and this would all be funded by a form of property tax. And, but uh, I had separately, uh, it had occurred to me because I've spent a fair amount of time in Hong Kong, that um, yeah, wall it off and, uh, and, 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 and go with a flat income tax rate minimal social services, uh, 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 safety net, um, and no uh, uh, capital gains tax, no VAT or sales tax, whole, whole Hong Kong system. And um, I was out in Michigan talking about this to a friend of mine. He said, oh, there's somebody way ahead of you, and that, and that, and that was Rod Lockwood. Now, I don't know. I, I talked to Rand Paul a little before I went to Detroit, and I don't think we talked about Detroit I have no idea whether he knew about Rod Lockwood's proposal. I think it may be one of these ideas that just naturally occurs to people looking at the problem. Here is a problem, a city that is a total mess, just a total mess. Um, and here is a pattern for a solution because people forget about Hong Kong that it was a total mess in the wake of, of, of World War II. Population had gone from 1.6 million down to 600,000, vicious occupation by the Japanese. Hong Kong had just started to get back on its feet when the communists won the Civil War on the mainland. And, and, and Hong Kong, um, in one year, there were one million refugees, almost all of them penniless. British labor government back uh, in, in, uh, at home in London is 
penniless, uh, partly because of World War II, of course, but also partly because they just in- instituted Obamacare and all sorts of other big social programs. They don't know what to do. And, and Hong Kong got itself out of this hole uh, partly due to a brilliant man um, named uh, uh, John Copperwaith, later Sir John Copperwaith, who would eventually become Hong Kong's financial officer. He was a young officer in the colonial uh, you know, administration, uh, a young financial officer sent out to try and do something about Hong Kong. And he realized the thing to do was to stay out of its way. And he's the one who insisted on a flat tax rate and insisted on then you ask, well, yes, but how do you do this? Um, how, in the meantime, you still have to have sewers. You still have to have water. You still have to have police courts, uh, ideally schools. Uh, how do you afford this in a place like Detroit or in a place like post-war Hong Kong? Well, Hong Kong had one thing going for it. Hong Kong owns all the land under Hong Kong, always has. The colony owns every bit of land in Hong Kong except for the land underneath the Anglican Cathedral, which is you know, an acre. And what the way government of Hong Kong financed itself until it was able to reap the benefits of its huge economic growth was by selling leaseholds on that land, first for little, then for more, then for much more. And now land in Hong Kong, even in unfashionable districts in Hong Kong, goes for around U.S., uh, $1,300 per square foot. Now, Detroit happens to be in very much the same situation. Half of Detroit's property taxes went unpaid last year. There is an estimated 40 square miles of vacant land in Detroit um, out of a, a city that's 143 square miles, uh, 143, I don't remember exactly. Um, and so Detroit could finance itself. And this is what Lockwood realized, and he took this little Belle Isle project, and he's now extended, tried to extend that project um, to <clears throat> another 15, 10 or 15 square miles of, uh, of, of the east side of Detroit, which is quite derelict, which has an airport. And, um, and so I went out to Detroit, and I said, Rod, go big or go home. Let's go for the whole thing. You know, let's take it all in, and whatever suburb that wants to come along, including the suburb where Detroit's huge international airport is, He's perfectly situated. Rod knows this. Uh, I talked about this a lot. Detroit's at the nexus of the interstate system. It's about 150 miles from the population center of America. It's at the nexus of the rail system. It's got 30 miles of sheltered dock space for for great late shipping. It's got a terrific first-rate international airport. I mean, it's a perfect hub. So if you could wall this off, give it tax advantages, the growth would be phenomenal, and Detroit could pay off all its debts. It's you know it's it's probably um, uh, you know the figures vary. Its immediate balance sheet shortage is like nine billion. It owes you know something on the order of eighteen billion dollars. But that land in Detroit, if it were valued at Hong Kong levels, would be worth something like one point four trillion dollars, and so. Every, everybody who's owed money uh, by the city of Detroit could get paid off you know, 100 cents on the dollar or a bunch more than 100 cents on the dollar. You've had, I think, uh, a unique opportunity to observe now Secretary of State John Kerry over a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm an old reporter, so, you know, and he's been around for a while. And, and, and I mean, you know, I, I, he and I are – 
of a generation. I remember him when he was an anti-war activist. Well, you, but you wrote something a, a long time ago. I think I'm actually maybe it was uh, 2004, which was about a far much earlier experience uh, in observing him. Oh, I yeah, in, in the Philippines. Yeah. In the Philippines, yeah. I saw this guy just act like a complete jerk. Um, I was in the Philippines covering the overthrow of Marcos in the middle of this snap election that was held where, where Cory Aquino would, would, would end up you know, eventually as president, although the election was, of course, terribly corrupt. And there were some vote counters. It was a big center where all the voter, vote, vote counting was being done. And there were these young ladies at the at the center who were data input. They've been trained in data input. They were not well educated young ladies. They were from very modest backgrounds, and they were very proud of having gone to data input school. And um, and they quit a group. Of, I don't remember how many of them, a dozen or so, quit in protest because they were putting in votes for Cory Aquino. They didn't. They weren't political particularly, but they were putting in votes for the Cory Aquino side. And those votes weren't coming out the other end. They knew enough about data that they realized that their input wasn't being reflected in output. And they, um, uh, they, they, were, and they were terrified that Marcos police and, uh, you know, and his thugs um, were going to hurt them for this. And so they, were, they went over to the cathedral where the wonderfully named Cardinal Sin uh, held sway and where they were temporarily safe. And um, they asked for observers. Uh, U.S. had sent observers, uh, uh, you know, to come and just publicize the fact that they had quit. And so they thought, you know, if there was enough U.S. sort of attention to them, then Marcos probably wouldn't have the nerve to do any harm to them or their families. And um, we had trouble finding uh, uh, observers, and or they had trouble finding observers. And the only one they could find was um, Senator Kerry, and he was having dinner at a hotel, and he refused to leave until he was finished with dinner. He was very, very late showing up. And um, uh, when he got there, uh, there, were two, there were a number of reporters, but two of them, one of them was me, and one was a guy named Joe Connison, who's still around, very left-wing, uh, reporter then for the Village Voice. Joe and I are friends. We're, we're opposite ends of the political spectrum. But, but we're friends, and we went to ask John Kerry, um, uh, um, you know, what the observers were going to do about this, and he was extremely dismissive. And uh, we kind of blew up, and we said, uh, look, look here, Senator, you know, these girls are asking. He wouldn't talk to them. He wouldn't talk to these girls who quit. And he, he came there, and he kind of stood aside, and um, he, um, uh, uh, he, was, he did nothing. And Joe, I think it was really, that really spoke up. And he said, look, Senator, you know, these girls are scared to death. They're just kids. You know, uh, all they're asking for is a little reassurance, you know, from the American Observer delegation here, you know, that their, their case won't be forgotten, you know, that we know about this. And you won't even go talk to them. And, um, and he wouldn't. And on the way back to our hotel, um, um, Joe and I in a taxi cab, I, I remember saying to Joe, I said, that son of a bitch ever runs for president. I'll go door to door. I don't care who he's running against. <laughs> I will go door to door for the other other person uh, that runs uh, uh, against him. Yeah. So uh, my uh, distaste for John Kerry goes way back. You and George Will seem to share a disdain for men wearing shorts and jeans. 
Well, anybody who's seen me in Georgian shirts and jeans will probably understand what that, that that's all about. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, I have been known to wear shorts in hot weather, you know, in the privacy of my home. <laughs> you know, jeans too, for that matter. But it is, you know, it just uh, um, haven't we lowered human dignity enough over the past <laughs> 100 years or so that we have to go lower it for ourselves by dressing like nine-year-olds? P.J. O'Rourke is an H.L. Mencken Research Fellow at the Cato Institute and author of The Baby Boom. You can watch a forum for the book at Cato.org.